Welcome back to Gray Matters, a podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. If you're following this podcast, then you probably follow the Gray Center's work. If you follow the Gray Center's work, it means you're reading a lot about the non-delegation doctrine. The Gray Center has encouraged scholars to think and write about the non-delegation doctrine uh, in the Founders' time and in our own time, especially with an eye to what the Supreme Court might be thinking now and in the future. Of course, we're not the only ones doing this. A number of great books and many, many articles in recent years focused on the non-delegation doctrine, surely because the Supreme Court seems so interested in it. And the latest and most comprehensive contribution to this discussion comes from the American Enterprise Institute. They just put out a new book. It's titled The Administrative State Before the Supreme Court, Perspectives on the Non-Delegation Doctrine. And I'm so glad to be joined today by the book's two editors. First, we have John Yu, a professor of law at uh, the Berkeley School of Law, also a, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. John, welcome. Thanks, Adam. And as you can tell by uh, being at AEI and Hoover, I'm just following you around. <laughs> well, it's going to get to that. As it happens, uh, the second the second editor on this is uh, the longtime Arthur Burns fellow at AEI and now a senior fellow emeritus, uh, enjoying retirement as busy as ever, Peter Wallace. <laughs> Peter, welcome. Good to be with you. Thanks. Uh, and as John alluded to, um, when I'm not here recording Gray Center podcasts, I'm also a, uh, a senior fellow at AEI. Um, uh, so it's a bit of a family reunion here, but I, I promise to ask some, uh, some skeptical and critical questions. Uh, before we jump into the substance of the book, though. Maybe I'd love to hear about the origins of the book. Peter, John, uh, either one of you, what, what spurred you two to, to come together on this project? Well, let me start with it. Um, and that is that I, it actually begins with something called the Dodd-Frank Act, which was adopted in 2010 um, and had some very strong language in it, giving uh, giving uh, power to administrative state agencies. Created something called the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which enabled a a council of, of uh, regulators to send companies to regulation by the Federal Reserve if they thought these companies were risks to the financial system. And at one point, I thought to myself, well, how, how can they do that? I mean, these are companies that are operating, uh, have have uh, uh, corporate uh, holders and, and all kinds of people invested in them. And suddenly, this organization can turn them over to the Federal Reserve for regulation. The Federal Reserve, when it takes hold of one of these corporations, as it did with GE Capital, virtually dismantles it. So I began to look into how this could have been done. And it happened that about that time I was speaking to a group at the Federalist Society. And I said, you know, I think this there's so many things in this act, particularly this FSOC business, uh, that has to be a violation of the non-delegation doctrine. And someone on the panel said, there is no do- non-delegation doctrine. It's all over. Nobody thinks of that anymore. And that kind of got me to say, to think, well, wait a minute, there is a reason for the non-delegation doctrine. And then I started to write a different book um, about the non-delegation doctrine. uh, And that then resulted in a conference that we had uh, at AEI and John was on the panel and I was listening to him and I was talking about the book and I decided afterward, he has an awful lot of very interesting things to say about the non-delegation doctrine. Why why don't we get a whole bunch of other scholars, constitutional scholars, to write articles about it? And so John and I talked about it after that panel and decided to do 
it. I'm very happy we did. And AEI has been enormously uh, patient with it because we ran right into COVID and had about two a two year period during which we really couldn't do much. But uh, we finally got it done. John, does that does that story ring a bell, or do you remember it completely differently? Yeah, I just can supply more color. I remember we did a panel. It was at, I think it was at Sea Island, Georgia. It was, and I think Senator Mike Lee was on the panel, uh, which was interesting. But then I remember the, the interesting thing is when we sat down to suggest we should do the book together, I remember we were in a funny room with like a Tweety bird in a bird cage sitting right above <laughs> Peter's head. And I was wondering whether I was watching the bird to see, is he going to do something bad on Peter's head before Peter's <laughs> finished talking? But other than that, it really, yes, it was just, we were on a panel together and we uh, sat down and, uh, we, and we said, whoa, there's nothing really, there's no book that really goes through the non-delegation doctrine and really doesn't provide a test. Yeah. That's the real th that's always been the puzzles like right. what's the test for the non-delegation doctrine so we said let's this is something where maybe uh, and the, everyone knows there's a problem with the test so why don't we sit down and see if as scholars we could actually do something really practical to help the court yeah not only that Gorsuch in his in his uh, decision uh, in uh, Gundy said what's the test and so we thought what a what a great opportunity to ask a lot of scholars what the test would be if they wanted to use the non-delegation doctrine or or talk about it. No, Peter, you're, you're bringing this all back to Dodd-Frank, brings back memories for me um, in a couple of ways. One is, I think the only paper I've ever written myself for the Gray Center, back before I was co-director of it, back when Naomi Rao ran it, she asked me to write a paper on FSOC because I'd been following it. And so I wrote, and I always thought the F, the Financial Stability Oversight Council's statute's amazing because it the Congress gave the FSOC, this interagency board, you know, about a dozen factors to consider in deciding whether an institution is systemically important. And then the last factor, I just brought it up here on the screen is, quote, any other risk-related factors that the council deems appropriate, <laughs> which as far as delegations go is pretty broad. But, you know, and then Peter, when those papers came out, I think you and I were on a panel together here at George Mason at the Gray Center. Uh, I hadn't, it's, it's been oh, a long yes. time, but I think so. But I'll, I'll tell you, Peter, one other thing about that era, before that paper, and I had worked on Dodd-Frank issues in private practice, and I was on a team, we brought a constitutional challenge to parts of Dodd-Frank. And I remember of all the advice we got in the run-up to filing that case, people, including conservative legal thinkers over and over again would say, whatever you do, don't frame this as a non-delegation case. Um, that that was, that would be the, the kiss of death. Make it, you know, focus on on agency structure, those sorts of things the court has a has a, a vocabulary for. Non-delegations vocabulary in the Supreme Court is not a good one. Um, their success rate is not a good one. But as you mentioned, in recent years, long after that litigation, you saw, I mean, Justice Thomas, had all, uh, who, for whom John Clark once, um, has long urged people to have a, an open mind about the non-delegation doctrine. Then Justice Gorsuch and and Justice Kavanaugh have both written and spoken on this. And I suppose what really got people's attention wasn't just that Justice Gorsuch wrote that dissent in Gundy, uh, but that Chief Justice Roberts joined it. Uh, and that seemed to be the, the concurring opinion that launched a thousand law review articles. Um, now, I have to say, in, as you said, you gather this group of scholars together to focus on the book. It's really, uh, it's an, such an impressive group. I'll just run through right here. You had contributions from uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg of the D.C. Circuit and, and here at the Scalia Law School who's long written on non-delegation. Uh, Todd Gaziano and Ethan Blevins from the Pacific Legal Foundation, Mark Chenoweth and Richard Samp from the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Gary Lawson from Boston University, Jonathan Adler from Case Western, Mike Rappaport from San Diego, John Harrison from Virginia, Cy Prakash from Virginia, Bill Postel from Hillsdale, and David Schoenbrod from New York Law School. That's quite an astonishing group. You bring them all together to write about the non-delegation doctrine. Did they all agree or how did this work? <laughs> 
Well, the fact that they agreed to write about it is something, uh, because I imagine they didn't think we wanted to hear from them to say uh, it doesn't exist or shouldn't exist. So I was very happy when we got this group together because they all seemed to be willing to say something um, interesting about the doctrine, and and actually they did. Uh, I'm sure John has a number of comments about them, but the one the one article, the one piece that I thought was really particularly interesting had to do with a common law um, discussion of agencies, and uh, that was that was by uh, what's his name from Gary Boston Lawson. Yeah, Gary Lawson. Yeah, yeah, Gary Lawson from uh, Boston University Law School, and and it had an element of verisimilitude to it because the first case was in 1825 before Justice Marshall, and he talked about what's the important thing and what are the less important things. And that's exactly the way these cases were handled in common law. Um, They had to do with, you know, a person carrying uh, something of value, paintings or dishes or whatever it was. And he was uh, he was supposed to get those things sold, but he was also able to hire the auctioneer for it and do other things that were not particularly important. And so that was the difference. Uh, and what and 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 Lawson's point was that's exactly what went on in common law agency, and that's how Marshall saw it. And so that a piece by Gary Lawson is in the book and is really quite quite interesting for that for that reason. It gives people a new insight, I think, into what uh, the framers were thinking when they were looking at this as being a sub-delegation. Uh, what, what happened in common law agency was that there was an agency of someone giving authority to do something. In this case, the people delegated uh, authority to make law to Congress, and Congress then sub-delegated. It was seen, I think, um, by Justice Marshall as a case of common law delegation. That's why he talked about things that were important that had to be done in the delegation and things that were not so important that could be done by Congress without uh, any uh, difficulty in delegating it. Yeah. I just uh, make clear that uh, my interest in this has nothing to do with banking, finance, securities regulation, uh, anything that remotely has anything to do with making money in this world, which is why I'm stuck in my university office, not out consulting, flying business class around the world. But I, I, I have to say, in fact, that um, it might be because uh, I'm curious what you guys think is, yeah, you see the non-delegation problem so clearly in financial regulation after the you know, the big meltdown in 08, 09. Uh, but it, that wasn't what got the court interested in it, strangely. You know, it was this, uh, I think Justice Thomas's uh, first uh, dissent was about a case involving railroads, I remember yeah. correctly. Wait, and, then the, yeah. and then the Gundy case is about this sort of obscure statute about sex offenders. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I always thought it would come in something like environmental law, because that's where it seems to me the biggest delegations are, is like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and that's what's on the court's docket this year. But it wasn't, you know, the, the court got their toes in the water in these sort of unusual small areas, not the big obvious problems. Yeah. I don't I don't know why that is, but um, I, I just, I well, wonder what you guys think about why that happened. The Bundy case, the Gundy case was absolutely great. It was the perfect case. Um, they reached down and took one issue out of uh, a case that had four or five issues in it, and they used that. And it would have been perfect for the decision, except for the fact that Kavanaugh did not get out of the process of confirmation until after the case was heard at the Supreme Court. It was the first case in October. 
and he was not he hadn't been sworn in yet. But it would have been perfect because it involved only one simple issue, and that is, was the attorney general given so much power um, under this under this authority that it was a delegation of authority to him to make the law that was it was the uh, a law involving sex offenders to make the law for Congress, and, and because Congress couldn't decide how to do it, it would have been perfect, and it was very a very small issue, and they could have established the non-delegation principle right then and there. But unfortunately, they couldn't get, they didn't have nine people on the court, so they could only, they could only get a 4-4 four, four outcome. Turned out that it was a 4-3 a, a outcome because uh, Alito did not vote in it at all because he didn't want to tie it up. So we were left in that peculiar situation, but it w- would have been a perfect case. We, we spoke about AEI, our AEI connections earlier. One more to add here is, is not long before he was nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, he gave AEI's annual Walter Burns lecture, and he focused on Rehnquist, but especially Rehnquist's approach to the non-delegation doctrine and hearkening back to the benzene case and those sorts of things. So um, it's clearly an issue that Kavanaugh has focused on over the years. But, you know, John, your point a moment ago about the court often raising, in recent years, non-delegation issues, not in the huge sweeping regulatory contexts of, say, the Clean Air Act, although I guess that was the Whitman case 20 years ago, but in these recent cases, it seems smaller issues. Justice Gorsuch focused on non-delegation in immigration cases when he was on the Tenth Circuit, right? There was immigration cases that were his his vehicle for delegation and deference discussions. And it seems to me, looking at that, that in some ways, all those might seem counterintuitive places for non-delegation discussions. Those are the places where you, where individuals feel the impact of these doctrines more directly, right? That's what Gorsuch wrote about on the Tenth Circuit, about how when Congress writes you know, immigration laws so broadly um, and agencies can flip-flop over time, individuals don't just don't know what the law is anymore. And so in some ways, maybe the, one of the reasons why non-delegations become more salient in recent years is because it's those contexts as much as the big sweeping regulatory ones that are the, 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 the forum for these discussions. I, I mean, I have in my conclusion, I also have a, another theory about this, which uh, supplements your idea that maybe it's individual rights that are at issue in these cases, like the, you know, the immigration and, of course, uh, sex offender sentencing. And maybe another argument is that the court, if it's not sure what the right test is, then they want to take it in small bites, try out different approaches, see what the response is from Congress and the agency, see whether the test works, yeah. uh, you see what the consequences are, uh, rather than trying to, you know, go for a grand slam the first time at the plate and getting rid of the entire non-delegation doctrine, not having a good sense what the consequences are going to be for the courts and the Congress and the administrative agency. So maybe that's a good case also for, you know, limited areas, smaller statutes, so that suppose they really screw something up, you know, the harm to the system is not going to be that great. And they can also generate information from the other actors in the administrative system about their response to what the court's trying. My, my sense is that uh, Congress is not going to do very much of anything. I mean, if the only people really would be upset would be the administrative agencies themselves. Um, it might just be a matter of the court saying, uh, you Congress, if you really want to do this, and you got to say so clearly. And that's been the lesson of the uh, Biden administration's losses on the three COVID cases. Yeah. yeah. Peter, your previous book, what your, your most recent book before this one, it was called Judicial Fortitude. And that was a line from uh, Hamilton's description of the judiciary in Federalist 78. Yeah. Um, I think you and I might have even done two events for that book. I think I interviewed you at AEI, and then uh, you came across the river over here to Scalia Law and then gave a presentation to the students. And, you know, right. both both of those 
those times I, I, I pressed you on this basic practical question. Um, it's one thing to talk about a non-delegation principle. It's another thing to translate that into a doctrine, especially a doctrine that the courts are going to administer. Uh, and, and you said, I thought of this in your answer just a moment ago, where you're talking about Gary Lawson's article. You said that some of this would play out in a common law way, right? That over to the courts would have to take this bit by bit. Um, and of course, the, the point of this book, I suppose, is that you have nearly a dozen authors or pairs of authors writing their own sort of approach to the non-delegation doctrine. But since you, you had that on your mind, I guess, five years ago, I'm curious how you think about it now, now that this book is, is completed. How could the, the courts actually go about the kind of common law approach that you alluded to in the past, that John alluded to here? It seems to me usually the courts just, I mean, they make broad judgments, especially the Supreme Court. I mean, how do, how do you see the court approaching this in the years ahead with more and more articles like this? Well, I, I, I'm kind of happy that the court has uh, indicated that it is susceptible to making a decision um, on non-delegation. I think for many years, people didn't make the argument. Uh, litigants who went to the court did not make that argument because they didn't think it was a, a winner. Um, and Gundy was a perfect example of the court picking out a case that was really small. Of course, it's big to Mr. Gundy, but it was a really small issue. And I, I think this was Thomas, uh, because he's been after that uh, issue now for about 15 years, at least 15 years before it came up. Uh, he's talked about it and he said in, in, in concurrences, we really should do something about this intelligible principle idea, which is what used to be the way the court looked at non-delegation. Had Congress set out an intelligible principle and that was almost meaningless. And, and that's what Thomas was saying. And so as soon as Gorsuch came on the court, I think Thomas counted heads. He saw that that Kavanaugh was coming on. The the chief was in favor of this approach um, and Alito was there. He was there. They had five votes. Um, and the as I say, I think the Gundy case was perfect. And we would just stop um, from getting a decision on non-delegation because Kavanaugh didn't get through with the hearing and all the detritus that went on with him um, at the time he was up for an, uh, approval, confirmation for the court. But uh, that's the common law process. You start with a very small kind of issue and then you work it out in subsequent cases. But the important point from the standpoint of the Supreme Court, I think, is that they want to make sure litigants come to them with these cases. They don't want to have to reach down into the into the appellate courts at, to find a case on which they can make a, a non-delegation argument, they want the litigants in front of them with a lawyer making a strong argument for non-delegation. And um, that's, I think we're in a situation where that is happening because just in this last, in this last hearing on the case that our book is, is about or, or was, was used for putting out the book um, had to do with an argument that was being made that there was a good uh, argument on non-delegation. There were, there were a lot of people on the left, progressive critics, who were hopeful um, that uh, this case would not be a non-delegation case, this one that was uh, recently before the court involving the EPA. Um, and and uh, at, it, as it turned out, um, most of the argument at the court was not about non-delegation, but the, but the Supreme Court could still uh, come out with an opinion that says that a non-delegation 
delegation um, action had occurred here, that Congress had given the EPA much more authority than it needed to make the decision that it made here. And as a result, non-delegation was uh, a possible outcome. And John and I wrote a, um, an article for the Wall Street Journal on that subject. Uh, of course, we haven't heard of a decision from the court yet. Yeah, and the case for those, the case, surely anybody listening to the podcast knows, but the, the case is West Virginia versus EPA, the, the big challenge over uh, the yes. over the state of climate climate regulation. Um, this has been pretty friendly so far, but, but needless to say, uh, <laughs> proponents for the non-delegation doctrine have their critics, and there's been any number of criticisms levied against uh, a revival of the non-delegation doctrine, both in recent years and, and going back decades. So let me put some of those out there for you, just to so you get a sense of your, your reactions. And again, since there's been a lot of AEI talk on this podcast, let's start with what Justice Scalia was writing when he was a lowly law professor and think tank scholar uh, at AEI in the early 80s. Uh, no, yeah, I guess it was early 80s. When you first saw this move towards a revival of non-delegation, the Supreme Court heard the benzene case and Scalia wrote a piece in uh, Regulation Magazine, which used to be at AEI, where he expressed a lot of skepticism about a judicial, a judicially enforced non-delegation doctrine. And his skepticism sounded a lot like the, his skepticism of a lot of what the courts were doing in the run-up to 1981. He was worried about judicial overreach under the 14th Amendment and other things. And when he looked at the non-delegation doctrine, he said, I appreciate the principle, but there just isn't a, a, an explicit and precise constitutional rule here in the Constitution for the court to, to enforce. I, I thought of this a little bit, John, when a few years ago, the Supreme Court heard that case about political gerrymanders. And the Roberts Court said, there's no constitutional rule we can apply to distinguish a political gerrymander that's unconstitutional from a just kind of political gerrymander. And I looked at that and I thought that sounds a lot like criticism of the non-delegation doctrine. So that's a very long way of asking you, John, what, how do you tend to respond when you get the, the old style Scalia criticism yeah. of non-delegation as a wariness of judicial discretion? Oh, I think there's two different uh, strands in conservative legal thought that came together in the first Reagan term, uh, or maybe the very end of the Carter years. Uh, you know, uh, Peter's a part of this. I just observe it. Uh, I'm curious to hear what Peter thinks about as an active participant. But my sense is one is, as, as you know, not just the non-delegation doctrine, but Chevron, a whole bunch of other doctrines. Uh, Republic, uh, Reagan appointed judges from the first term, like Bork and Scalia. You know, and, the, and the center thought, thinking about this, was at AEI at that time, was for courts to generally take a hands-off attitude towards the activities of the administrative state. And I think that's because uh, the Reagan administration, or President Reagan, campaigned on a platform of deregulation. I mean, if we're living through a rerun of the 70s now, high inflation, setbacks abroad, regulation strangling the economy. And so the Reagan administration's answer to that was, uh, well, when we come into government and we're the heads of the agencies, we're going to deregulate and we don't want the courts interfering with deregulation. And so we're in favor of Chevron and the non-delegation doctrine because it might be used by activist courts to interfere with a deregulatory program. So you have that strand. Um, and then you have the longer conservative, I think, legal movement strand that goes back, you know, many decades, all the way back to the New Deal, you know, really, which was, uh, you know, it traces its way back to Frankfurter, maybe to Holmes and so forth, the 
Thayer. But the, the idea was, uh, you know, courts should generally have exercise restraint. Um, they should try not to strike down government actions unless there's a clear mistake. And sort of a corollary to that is there's going to be a classic cases where there's just no legal standard to apply. You know, it's the second part of the political question doctrine, uh, which you mentioned with the gerrymandering case. The court, though, has never said the non-delegation doctrine is really kind of a subspecies of the political question doctrine. And so I think that's why Peter and I um, uh, went ahead with this book, because if the court had ever said it was a political question doctrine issue, then the courts were saying, we're just never going to do it. Instead, the court would say things like, it's just a hard problem. We can't figure out a test. Uh, The political question doctrine is more of a, there is no test possible, right? Every test is political. And so we won't get involved with partisan gerrymandering. That's not what the court's been saying in non-delegation. I mean, in fact, you know, Peter and I would say they purport to have this test, this intelligible principle test. It just never has ever found any delegation to be unconstitutional. It's not a real test. Um, You can't really identify anything that would fail that intelligible principle test. So I think that um, is where uh, conservatives have really come to change their minds, I think, is I think um, you have this, you're seeing this with the Trump justices, with Justice Thomas and Alito too, this uh, judicial restraint uh, of the uh, Holmes, Frankfurter, Bork Scalia type, I think, is starting to disappear amongst conservatives. And it's being replaced with a more robust vision of judicial review. But it's not the same kind that the progressives want, which is primarily aimed at equality. It's more aimed at defending the structure of the Constitution. And so it's not a surprise to me that right that you've seen, I wouldn't say turned back on Bork and Scalia, but moved, I think, moved beyond them. Peter, uh, John referred to you being in the Reagan administration. Just Our listeners might know, might not know, uh, you were the White House counsel for President Reagan, yes. and you also were uh, general counsel for the Treasury Department, right? Um, right. Earlier. So under- it's all Peter's fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we ever get a non-delegation doctrine, I hope it will be my fault. Yeah. But uh, I, I really do believe that the non-delegation doctrine is important over the long term, because our danger in this country is that we will turn over to unelected officials the power to make the laws for us. And the non-delegation doctrine, the purpose of it is to make sure that the laws are actually made by a representative group, the Congress. And given to the not, uh, the administrative agencies uh, to administer. And that's where that, that problem arises. I mean, how much power has been given to them? And if you look at all of these, the, these essays are really excellent for this because they show how constitutional specialists think about these things. But what, what you get from it is that it is a judgment. It's, it, in each case, it's a judgment by the courts whether uh, Congress has given too much authority to uh, an administrative agency. Um, and that's where it should be. We should have it. And my first book, this one about a judicial fortitude and, and, what, and, and what people were saying about the Constitution at the time it was framed, is really uh, one of the only books that I've been able to find that really talks about the non-delegation doctrine as being important, because what it does is protect us against the possibility that Congress will simply just step step back and say, here, you, administrative agencies, you do all of the legal work, and we'll avoid making these really tough decisions that our constituents might vote against us for making. And that, if we get to that position, we're not a democracy anymore, at least uh, a republic. Now, that reminds That reminds me of uh, that that last point, Peter, reminds me of the opening pages to a book that I bet John has read uh, over the years by John Hart Ely called War and Responsibility. And in the very beginning, Ely's 
talking about the late Professor John Ely, John R. Ely is talking about Congress giving more and more war power to the executive branch, the presidency. And, and Ely writes, uh, this is a book about accountability, right? It's not that presidents have stolen power. It's that Congress has given it away um, because accountability is pretty frightening stuff. And that, that quote, I'm just paraphrasing it there, but it always jumped out at me. But but John, maybe that leads to the second, one of the, the second concern about non-delegation is that Congress just, even if it wanted to legislate on a lot of these issues, it couldn't possibly do it. The, 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 the issues, whether it's air quality, food safety, all these things, they are, they are extremely complex. They require a lot of expertise. Um, they have to be written in immense detail, and then they have to be updated in light of new knowledge and new circumstances. Um, that's a, a task that agencies are well equipped for, and, and there's processes under the Administrative Procedure Act. But Congress itself uh, would not be able to do a good job of legislating in this context. What, what do you think about that? It's a great question. It's a deep question. Um, and it maybe uh, separates uh, me from my friend, Phil Hamburger, who I think he traces the administrative state as a part of uh, this kind of return of British absolutist monarchical power. And I don't trace it to that. And I think, and this is the wise answer to your question, I trace it to uh, a change that's really introduced by the progressive era and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, right? Woodrow Wilson is one of the great political scientists in our history. He's president of Princeton and before he becomes governor of New York and I was New Jersey and then president. And his books on congressional government and the presidency are still studied in universities today. He thinks, or he goes and he studies German theories of administrative law. And right, the German response to these problems you're raising, Adam, about too many things going on, right? The society too complex for the kind of decentralized common law system or private ordering that was the way America governed and other countries governed right, have become obsolete. Woodrow Wilson's really the first president who really campaigns on the platform that constitution is obsolete and has to be kind of organically replaced by this right, efficient modern German system of administration where, and right, and this is uh, the model. It's almost like so we've lived under it for so long, we just almost accept it as true, right? Uh, all these decisions are technical and scientific in nature. They should be made by experts. And so experts must be insulated from politics because politics is dirty and will interfere and distort their scientific decisions. Right? That's essentially the argument that critics are making about the non-delegation doctrine. Congress is dirty, political. They don't have the time or the energy expertise. Let the Dr. Fauci's of the world decide everything, right? You see actually the highest expression of this model in the lockdown policies and the CDC response to COVID. But right, we govern ourselves pretty well, you know, until uh, the New Deal through the system I think the Constitution creates, which is a decentralized system, power pushed down to the states, not centralized in Washington. The federal government's role primarily you see through the courts and adjudication of disputes with some law enforcement. A lot of the decisions in life are made through private ordering. Uh, it's really, uh, I mean, I, I'd be curious to see if there's actually any empirical proof that this sort of heavy-handed, centralized, technocratic, progressive vision of government has actually been more successful than, you know, this sort of English common law system that we had in our country until the emergency of the Great Depression. And you know, historians nowadays, they don't think the Great De the New Deal ended the Great Depression. It was the rearmament for World War II. And one last thing, and this is where I want to tie back Ely, and sorry for going along, but the Ely is a very provocative point. The other thing that progressives and Wilson did is that the non-delegation, things like non-delegation, Chevron, centralization, they do exist in our system during war and during emergencies. And I think Wilson and particularly FDR, they were very open about what they did. They basically mobilized the government on a wartime footing for domestic regulation that would never 
never end, right? They wanted to just adopt what they thought were the best things about war government and just turn that into the administrative state. And so, yeah, the things that John Hardy doesn't like about wartime government, you know, the things, all those things he said are features of the administrative state too, because that's the kind of model that the progressives borrowed. Ely himself, I mean, he focused directly on non-delegation in his most famous book, Democracy and Distrust. And and one of your contributors, David Schoenbrod, has often sort of hearkened back to that. I mean, most of your contributors are, I think they qualify as conservatives of one stripe or another. Schoenbrod definitely isn't, um, uh, but he's been sort of a pro-non-delegation doctrine scholar, very much in the in the spirit of, of Ely and his focus on democracy. David um, shows that you can make a whole career out of the non-delegation doctrine. Yeah, that's right. Um, we should all be so lucky. But no, no, in, in addition to Congress's capacity, let's get back to judicial capacity a little bit. Um, my, so I, I wouldn't, I'm in favor of the non-delegation principle. I sometimes get wary of non-delegation doctrines, kind of for reasons that Scalia might have, you know, wondering how exactly you draw these lines. And I think a lot about what Madison writes in, in Federalist 37. Um, it's in the flyover country of the Federalist uh, between 10 and 47. But uh, he he talks about vagueness in law. And, uh, and Madison writes about how all laws are going to be vague, no matter how much time you spend thinking on deliberating on them and writing them as carefully as you can. There's always going to be vagueness. And that vagueness is going to be worked out over time, he says, through deliberations and adjudications. This is his theory of liquidation. And so where I'm going with this is anytime I see a non-delegation test that's focused on, say, specificity, um, Congress needing to speak clearly, um, I think, well, that makes sense in general, but there's there's always going to be some ambiguity in law, for better and worse. Well, so there may be another way to look at it is the magnitude of the issue. And that's what Chief Justice Marshall was getting at in the case that Peter was alluding to, the Wayman v. Southard case from 1825. And, and I, I pulled up the quote here in Lawson's article where, where Marshall says uh, the line between important subjects, which must be entirely regulated by the legislature itself, from those of less interest in which a general provision may be made by Congress. Um, but that's a hard line for Congress to draw or courts to draw too between the important subjects and the unimportant subjects. So that's, yeah, this is very, very meandering question. I'm sorry about that. But I guess at the end of the day, even Marshall, I mean, he says here in the quote, the line has not been exactly drawn between those categories. Um, it certainly hadn't been when he was writing. Yeah. <laughs> this is the first case to come to him like that. But yeah, it is a very difficult line, but that's, that shouldn't be something that frightens the judiciary away from my point of view. It is it is very, very important that over time we have a limit of some kind on the administrative state because things are getting more and more complicated. And the problem is that the judges can be frightened away by people telling them, well, you just don't know how difficult these issues are. And they may just give up. That's why in the book, at least in the introduction to our book, I wrote about the Chevron case as well as the non delegation doctrine, because Chevron is the same problem. Chevron said, and and Scalia was a big supporter of this, um, right from 1984 when it was decided all the way to his departure from this life. And in 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 what he said, he was he was taking the position that at least we had certainty here. If we allowed courts to decide um, that agency what agencies were doing was within a reasonable framework, um, we should give them that uh, uh, that opportunity. Um, and that kind of opened things up and made it much easier for agencies to make these decisions. But from my point of view, it went, it went too far. And we really have to have some kind of objective view 
of how far agencies are going with the powers that they're given by Congress. And Chevron, I think Chevron's on its way out now, from what I read in in the court's recent decisions. But Chevron was one thing that gave them an awful lot of authority, as well as not having a non-delegation doctrine hanging over the heads of uh, the heads of these agencies. And surely the, 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 the scaling back of Chevron has been informed, first and foremost, by non-delegation principles that, that we see in the major questions doctrine and so on. Maybe one last substantive question before we go. Um, there's been, as I said at the outset, there's been a lot of scholarship on non-delegation in recent years, and a lot of it is focused on the early Congresses. Uh, maybe the most prominent of these articles by uh, Nick Bagley and Julian Davis Mortensen at uh, Michigan. They had a piece in the Columbia Law Review called Delegation at the Founding, where they uh, discuss a number of very broad delegations that the early Congresses made to the, the nascent executive branch. Uh, Nick Prillo of Yale has a paper uh, focused on taxes and, and what he saw as, as broad delegations of, of taxing power. Of course, our own co-director here, Jen Mascott, has written a paper on delegation and the founding with an eye to, to customs laws, and she sees the evidence the other way. I'm not going to quiz you on those pieces, don't worry. But <laughs> how, should, how should we think about the work of the early Congresses, right? The first Congress, the later Congresses. John, all of your work on executive power oftentimes brings us back to, to the early practices. Um, how would you approach those those practices of the early Congresses uh, on delegation? What would you look for? How much weight would you put on the early Congresses? Just speaking in broad terms. Adam, I feel bad because all those papers you mentioned were at the same conference where I was, and I'm the only one who still has to publish my paper from that conference. All the oh. other guys <laughs> have gone ahead and published. But my, as you know, I, I, um, I tended to approach these kind of questions from the lens of game theory, actually, rather than um, the original history. But I have followed all, I've actually read all those papers pretty carefully, because as you say, I'm very interested in uh, the original understanding uh, from the founding. And so the criticism of non-delegation from original sources are of two types. The one I think has been pretty well refuted. The second one is harder. So if you look at the Mortensen piece, which is the first kind, it's to say, uh, just reading political theory of the day, right? Just Locke and Montesquieu and Blackstone. Did they think you could delegate or not? Right? And uh, Perillo, the other kind of paper is more, can we find examples of broad delegations or not at the time? You know, they're very two different types of originalism. Um, I think the one about political theory, I, I just was not persuaded by the Mortensen article because I think when you look at Locke in the, the the social contract theory that he's bringing into constitutional law, it's all about delegation. <laughs> I mean, it's a, the, the whole idea of social contract is that we as individuals are delegating our own sort of sovereignty over ourselves in the state of nature to a government. I mean, that's sort of, I think actually Locke is, and perhaps before him, uh, Machiavelli, where the idea of delegation really comes from as a concept. So I just think that, I mean, I think they did a fair amount of work, but I think it was a very strained reading of the political theorists of the time. The Perillo work is interesting. It's a very technical area of law. And I think this gets to Peter's point is that there are going to be areas where, of course, there has to be some kind of delegation. Uh, the question is, uh, when do you go too far? And so the thing I think we need to just do more originalist work, I, and I'm much more in favor of this kind of originalist work, is looking at actually what was done at the time to see if they were following some kind of principle that they didn't explicitly set out. So, you know, Perillo has this one uh, technical area, but I think the area where we really uh, should do a lot more research is what was going on at the states, because the states, uh, you know, the state constitutions were the most important legal documents uh, before the constitution. And there's 13 governments, right? And they 
are, you know, there's a relations between assemblies and governors. And so I think that's where there's a, the opportunity for a lot of research, which also is more directly on point as to what the delegates to the constitutional convention and the state conventions believed rather than post-ratification practice, which, you know, everyone admits is of secondary, uh, secondary reliability compared to things that were said before. Um, so I think there's still a lot more work. I think that we're just scratching the surface now looking at original practice at the time of the founding, um, which without getting into the fancy debates about, you know, constitutional construction, liquidation, I don't, I think those are fancy arguments about just interpretation, but you need to have the raw evidence first, which is let's do some more research at the time of the founding. And You're John, smiling, I'm, Adam, which means you must be writing a paper about state no, constitutional yeah. practice at the ratification. No, John, I'm smiling. <laughs> I, chuckled, I chuckled when you, when you said you hadn't published your paper uh, and John, the paper John's alluding to, it's in our working papers page. It's called uh, Rational Non-Delegation. I was smiling because, John, the FSOC paper that I wrote for Naomi Rao about six years ago, I never managed to finish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, you're so guilty. I have one even used. But I do want to say um, uh, we we have actually published some working papers here on the state issues, one by one of your contributors, Joe Postel, yeah. mm-hmm. one by Daniel Walters of, of Penn State. And for those who, who want to learn more about the Bagley-Mortensen argument, uh, Professor Bagley was actually one of the first guests on this podcast um, uh, when, it, when it started back around episode 15 or thereabouts. So you can tune into that. Um, but there will be much more written and said in the years ahead. Peter will give you the, the final word here. And I should say, once again, the book is titled The Administrative State Before the Supreme Court, Perspectives on the Non-Delegation Doctrine. You can get it in all of your local bookstores. You can also find it on AEI's website if you just Google The Administrative State Before I the Supreme Court. I would actually be shocked AEI. if you found it at a local bookstore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's expensive. Bring your credit card. Um, actually, and don't forget Judicial Fortitude, which is the original book on this. But let me let me talk about one thing on the Bagley-Mortensen paper because I, I've read it and my view is, and this is a very radical view, I don't care what all of these people were saying at the time the Constitution was framed. Um, what I care about is what the American people heard at the time the Constitution was framed because they were the voters and what they heard, as far as we can tell, was almost everything that was that Madison was saying, which is that you have to separate the powers. You have to separate the litigation power from the uh, from the executive power and the judicial power. And if you if you allow them to be combined, you're in danger of some kind of uh, over overweening government. So Mortensen and Bagley do a lot of really good work on trying to talk about what people were saying outside this process. But the real process that's important is what people voted on. And that was Madison's idea, which is that you have to keep the powers separated. So I would say all of that stuff that they did in their in their judicial work um, or their or their research work is not really relevant to the question. It's what people voted on and people voted to have a separation of powers. That's how they understood it. And that's the way I think scholars ought to be talking about the Constitution. Well, and, and anyone who wants to read their article uh, by, by Mortensen and Bagley, it's titled Delegation at the Founding. But then again, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that. So, uh, Peter, John, thanks again for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in once again for this episode of Gray Matters. Be sure for more information to sign up on the Gray Center's website. You can get our news and events there or follow us on Twitter, where, of course, all sensible conversations happen at hashtag AdLawCenter. And again, the book we've been discussing is titled The Administrative State Before the Supreme Court. 
Perspectives on the Non-Delegation Doctrine, uh, edited by Peter Wallison and John Yu. Thanks again and tune in next time.